Uh, all of that months and months worth of dialogue in two minutes, uh, that's, that's right where we're at in the story. Let me start here with this sticky phrase that I have for you. God's power goes to work as I surrender. God's power goes to work in my life as I surrender. I mean, I just unpack that. What's involved in surrender? Uh, some things that maybe I don't like or do naturally, like humility, uh, deference, acknowledging that, hey, God is actually God and I'm actually me. I mean, if there's a God, he probably knows some things that I don't know. Is that like a fair statement? Uh, acknowledging that, hey, God's probably the one who's in control, not me. Uh, there's some difficult things involved in surrender, but what we see in the story is that God goes to work in the nation and in the lives of the individuals in all their circumstances when they submit to him, when they surrender to him. So let's start with this. Can you imagine or can you remember the last time something impacted you so deeply? Uh, you observed a situation, a circumstance, and it just moved you, it disturbed you to the point that you had to take action. You had to do something about it. Uh, you couldn't just brush it off, it, it just stuck with you. Uh, and I don't mean like you had an argument with your spouse and you had to like retaliate, not that kind of action. Uh, I mean something broke your heart for somebody else and you had to do something about it. You couldn't sit on the sideline. Well, that's what happens to one of the principal figures in chapter 21. It's a guy named Nehemiah. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Good old Hebrew name, Nehemiah. Say it with me, Nehemiah. Way to go, you nailed that. Uh, something really significant happened in the story two weeks ago. Uh, you might remember that uh, the, the nation of Israel had been divided into two, and the northern kingdom, which referred to themselves as Israel, they basically assimilated into other cultures. They were lost to history. The southern kingdom, two weeks ago, was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And we talked about a guy named Ezra, who was allowed to lead a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. King Xerxes allowed him to go back, and they returned, uh, and they began to build, rebuild the temple. This is pre-Ezra, sorry. A group of people went back to begin rebuilding the temple. Uh, and the temple was not just a temple, it was the temple. Uh, it was the temple, like the place where God's presence actually dwelt on the earth, where God actually lived in the innermost area of the temple. They refer to it as the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence was. So like the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, all the Indiana Jones type stuff, that's where it lived, in God's presence. And the temple was where the people would go to make sacrifices and atonements for their sin, uh, all part of the Old Testament law. The actual presence of God was at the temple. I know I just said the same thing like 12 times. Uh, I just want to make sure we understand like this is not like a church uh, or a temple. This is like the temple. It's impossible to understand a lot of references throughout the entire Bible without understanding the significance of the temple. So for God's people, the temple was really the center of their lives, individually and collectively as a nation. Uh, the process that God is working of re reconciling the entire world back to the place that he intended it to be, that process is coming through the Jews, through their worship, through the descendants of Abraham, and so their entire existence revolves around the temple and what happens at the temple. So this first group goes back from captivity to rebuild the temple. And you might remember they built the altar where they would worship and they laid the foundations of the temple. 
But then they kind of slip back into their historical pattern of, yeah, okay, well, everything's cool now. We kind of got our own land back. We're back in our own place. Let's just kind of put God's house over here on the side and go about our own lives and build up our own lives. Now, here's the problem with that. You can't be God's people and not follow God's plan. In the same way that, that if we're not actually following Jesus, we're, we're not Christians. Like the word, the word Christian means to be Christ-like. If I'm not following his example, I'm not a Christian. I might believe in Jesus. I might have some form of faith, but I'm not following his example if I'm not actually following his example. Well, that's kind of what they're doing. They're God's people, uh, but they're not actually following the pattern that God's established for them. So then God uses Ezra. He leads another group back, and he sees what's happening, and God uses him to pull the people back out of this idolatry and back toward him before the situation gets out of hand. And you might remember Ezra went back. 16 years have gone by since they laid the foundation of the temple and abandoned the work. Ezra rallies them, he calls them back to God, and they finish building the temple. So then we arrive at chapter 21. Uh, This group has gone back to check out the situation. Uh, The Babylonians have sent a group back to examine, okay, what happened when Ezra went back? He went back and we've heard all these good things. Go check it out and give us a report. So they investigate and they see, oh, they finished the temple. This is is great. This is good news. And they see that Ezra has cleaned up the spiritual mess that he found when he got there. And the people were worshiping foreign gods, but Ezra, God has used Ezra to turn their hearts back to him. And Ezra's helped them kind of untangle these relationships that they had made with these pagan nations. And uh, so the scouts, they go back to to Babylon, which is in the Persian Empire, and they give a favorable report uh, about these good things that have happened. And this is where Nehemiah comes on the scene. Nehemiah shows up, and uh, he has a very important job in the Persian Empire that we don't really have today, uh, at least that I'm aware of. Uh, He's the king's cupbearer. This is a strange job because, um, you, know, you, you know, you read through like archaic history and it's like, okay, this king used to be the king, but then he disappeared and someone else took over and this person's brother attacked his, you know, sister-in-law's friend. And like, they're just like this constant cycle of regime change. And you're like, I don't even know who's who. Like this would happen. Assassinations were like normal. Like that wouldn't even make front page news back then. And so one of the ways that they would try to do that is by poisoning their food. That was a common method. So the cupbearer had a really important job. Like the cupbearer would, would try the king's food and you know, if the king looked over and he's like, yeah, it's good, it's good eats, we're good to go, then soup's on, right? And of course, if he doesn't do well, then the king's not gonna eat it. Well, the other side of that coin is, let's just say my man Owen and I wanted to assassinate the king, uh, we would probably try to win the cupbearer over, like make it worth the cupbearer's while to come over to our side and participate in the plot. So the cupbearer had to be somebody the king really, really trusted. This was a really prominent and important position that Nehemiah found himself in. You don't just put anybody in it. So Nehemiah's story starts 13 years after Ezra left to go finish the temple back in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah hears something when these scouts come back, something that moves him to the point that he has to take action. He can't just let it go. Uh, Nehemiah hears about the condition of the wall. And this is what it says. If you're reading along in the story, it's on page 295. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the story, now's a great time to jump in. We're about to go into the New Testament. Uh, If you have your Bible handy, it's Nehemiah 1, right at the very beginning. Nehemiah gets the report on the condition of Jerusalem. 
It says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, this predates our modern calendar, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came back from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. I asked for a report. What did you see? What did you find? They said to me, those who survived the exile, the ones who went back and are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they're both really concerned about this wall. The wall is critical because uh, if the wall is broken down, it's only a matter of time till another nation, another army comes in, and the people are wiped out. The city is only as strong as the wall. And because this is the, the city of God, if you will, it's the place where the temple is, it's the place where God's people have congregated, Nehemiah and Ezra take it really, really personally. Uh, now, if you've read his story, you know that God uses Nehemiah, uh, his position in the empire, to accomplish his plans. Eventually, Nehemiah gets permission to go back and rebuild the wall, and he successfully manages that. Uh, and it's really interesting because as they're building the wall, the nations around them are opposing it. Like, they don't want the Jews to grow up and be strong and build their own nation. So as they're building the wall, they're literally being attacked, like actual, like, tool in one hand, sword in the other. Uh, it's pretty incredible stuff. They go and they rebuild this wall while other groups are trying to stop them. The best word I could use probably to describe Nehemiah is ferocious. He's rebuilding the wall. He has been moved to action. He's getting it done, and you don't want to be the people that are trying to stop him from doing it. We find out later in Nehemiah 6 that he rebuilt the wall with this group of people in 52 days. Now, just for context, uh, 52 days, they built a wall big enough to go around an entire city, big enough and strong enough to withstand opposing armies by hand with no mechanization, no machines, in 52 days. Just for reference, uh, there's a pothole that used to be at the end of my street that took two years to get fixed. Uh, my friend Adam is an engineer, and he used to work for a municipality, and you could probably tell us all about why that took two years. But we have this massive infrastructure. They built this wall around an entire city in 52 days. Nehemiah is an extraordinary leader, great man of God. Everyone agrees. See what I did there? Yeah, no? Okay. No, no one bit on that. Okay. Uh, he, he really did this incredible thing, though, amazing leadership, how God used him to get this done. Uh, so I hope you'll get in, involved in the story. I hope you'll read the chapter this week and kind of see what happened there, uh, mostly because on Sunday, we just don't have time to like, talk about the whole story. We just try to capture a big idea from it. Uh, but today, I just want to take the remainder of our time and focus on Nehemiah's response. Okay? We, just, we just did this huge, quick flyover of Nehemiah's situation. Uh, but I just want to focus on his response because it's very pointed. It's a very distinct response. On page 295 in Nehemiah 1, verse 4, he says, When I heard these things, when I heard about the wall, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is disturbed about this wall. His heart is broken about the wall. He's not just a little bothered and it's not like when I hear a news story about something that happens on the other side of the world, and I'm like, oh, yeah, gosh, that kind of sucks for those people. Nehemiah is moved. He can't be silent. He has to take action. Why would he be so disturbed about the wall? 
Now think about this. Uh, his people have been in captivity in Babylon for over 100 years at this point. Uh, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He was born in Babylon. His parents were born in Babylon. His grandparents were born in Babylon. Probably even if I'm doing you know, decent math, his great-grandparents were probably even born in Babylon. Why is he so concerned about the wall? Why is it such a big deal? Because the wall is, exists to protect the temple, the centerpiece of God's activity, God's house, the focal point of God's plan to redeem all of humanity. The temple is the epicenter of God's plan to bring the world back to him. This is why Nehemiah is so concerned about the wall. It's God's home. The temple is the tangible representation of God's presence and glory on the earth. Now, sometimes people wonder, why do pastors care so much about building the church, about helping people connect to the church, about helping people get into church? Why do they care so much about that? Why is that such a big deal? And we talk here oftentimes about things like the Great Commission. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he gave all of his followers the, con- the commission to go carry on his work, to be his representation on the earth. Uh, we talk about that a lot, but watch this, this example from here. This is really interesting. Ezra saw that the temple was not complete, and he gave his life away to finish building the temple. That's, that's what Ezra did, because he understood God's plans are going to come through this place. This is God's home. Nehemiah saw that the temple was unprotected, and he gave his life away to go protect God's house. Now, that was Old Testament. So what does the Bible say about the temple that pertains to us? In 1 Corinthians 13, 16, one of several places where you'll find similar language, Paul is writing to all the Christians in Corinth. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So for us here right now this morning as part of the global capital C church, do we realize that all of us together, we're the temple of God? That the Spirit of God doesn't live in buildings made with human hands, that the Spirit of God lives in us, that we are the representation of God's glory. Why should we care about the mission of the church? Why should we care about the health of the church? Why should we devote ourselves to the capital C global church of Christ? Because we are his temple. His spirit lives in us. The church is God's family. We're his household. The church, not the temple any longer, is the epicenter of God's plan to draw the world back to himself. How about that? I can think of better ways than me. Like, I really, I can. Like, the temple doesn't seem that bad. Uh, You're looking at me like, that's the plan? We're the plan. We're the epicenter of God's plan to bring the world back to him. We are the expression as his household, as his family. We are the expression of God's glory here on the earth. So how that plays out, like for me, personally, for example, uh, I felt compelled to come and plant a church, to start Center Church. And I know Pastor Rick, you know, we dialogue about this a lot. We did this together, and uh, he felt the same way because I saw people that I knew and cared about who weren't part of the church, who weren't part of God's household, and I had to do something. I didn't know if I'd be good at it. I didn't know if it worked, but I knew I had to do something. That's how it has moved me personally. In Center Church, this little church right here at Westview Elementary, we are one expression as a local church of the global church of Christ. 
And for some that are part of Center Church, this is the only church family you've ever known. Because someone who's part of this local church cared about you enough to help you know Jesus. They made the mission of God their mission. And here you are. You're part of God's family forever because of that. We are building and protecting God's home because we are his home. That's why it matters. So Nehemiah sees the temple, the epicenter of God's plan to bring the world back to himself unprotected, and he has to take action. Now, if you've been following along the story, you might, be, you might have done the math on something. Like, they've been gone for Jerusalem forever. Like, hasn't this wall been torn down for like a century now? So like, why the big rush? Like, why is there a big deal now? Why the sudden urgency? Uh, it's like this. Many of you have heard myself or Pastor Rick carry on about Chick-fil-A. Yep, I'm about to, carry, I'm about to compare the wall to Chick-fil-A. That's about to happen. Uh, who, by the way, are closed on Sundays, uh, if you haven't heard the song. Uh, you've heard us carry on. Sometimes I'll like, talk about Chick-fil-A to somebody who's never been there before. And they're probably thinking something like, okay, well, it must be a pretty good chicken sandwich if you're carrying on about it like this. Uh, but then sometimes I'll run into that person later on, and they have been there since we last talked, and they'll be like, dude... I went to Chick-fil-A. Like, now they see the world in living color because they finally went. You know what I'm saying? Like, before they thought, oh, yeah, it's a good chicken sandwich. But now they get it. You know what I mean? Like, they they get it now. Well, apparently, that's similar to what's happened to Nehemiah. Like, the wall's been broken down forever. But for some reason, the Spirit of God has worked in his heart, and he gets it now. Like, this is a thing. Somebody's got to do something. And I'm not going to, like, punt the ball down the field. I'm going to do something, because he gets it now. He is moved to urgency. He understands, apparently now, something he didn't understand before, that that this this is God's process of restoring everything back to its intended state. The temple is important because it contains God's presence. Uh, So he understood, I got to do something. I get it now. I don't know if he got it before, but he gets it for sure now. Now, some of you might connect to that, because maybe you're just, you're a good person. Maybe you've believed in God your whole life, and, and maybe you've always known for a long, long time that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, but then there was this time where all of a sudden, like, you got it. Like, I'm an agent of reconciliation. I am God's plan for the restoration of all things. He wants to work through me, and then everything looked different. Somebody who gets it, um, they might look at people that they used to view as trouble and now see them as treasure. They might now engage the things that they used to avoid because they get it now. They understand now. That's what's happened to Nehemiah, and that's, that's really what the grace of God that's extended to all of us, that's, that's what it should do to us, honestly. Like, when we get it, that's what it should do to us. We can understand that we're part of the process. We have a role to play. And you know what I find inspiring about Nehemiah? Uh, his conviction's cool. I think most of us have convictions uh, about things, but Nehemiah, uh, he actually proves his conviction by taking action. Uh, and that's like, that's a next step, and it's a big step, uh, but he, he proves his conviction, he demonstrates it by his action. He understood that he was part of God's process to restore all things. He was ready to take his place in the story, and I'd love to just ask you the question, if God has a place for you in the story, are you ready to take your place in the story? It's really connected to what Pastor Rick was just talking about, uh, that we have influence. God wants to use us in other people's lives for their benefit. So here's the, the part that I just want to challenge you with and, and hopefully encourage you with as well. Uh, 
Nehemiah, you're, you're going to read this week. Hopefully you'll read about Nehemiah. He had an incredible life. He was like William Wallace centuries before William Wallace. Just, just an amazing guy. And truthfully, he had probably a more prominent role in the story, at least a more well-known role in the story than any of us will ever have. I mean, he's in the Bible, so. Uh, so yeah, we're not going to be able to like, you know, one-up that. He was this incredible leader, but all of it began in his heart. And that's no different for you and me. It all started in his heart, not with a campaign or a great you know, campaign slogan or leadership or even with his resolve to do something. That's not where it started. Even for Nehemiah, God's power went to work when he surrendered, when he just submitted himself to God's plans. Nehemiah was probably a very capable person. He was probably really smart, maybe even charismatic. I'm, I'm making that assumption based on the fact that he had risen to a really important position in Babylon. Uh, somehow that happened. Uh, but the most important thing he did was surrender to God's will. The most important thing he did was put God back on the throne and view himself as uh, under God. He acknowledged he'd been going his own direction and that God was calling him back his direction. So he did this thing that we don't really like to talk about uh, because it involves me admitting that I'm wrong. Uh, does anybody like that? If you like that, then there's something wrong with you. Uh, no one likes that. We call it repentance is the word we use. It's not even necessarily a spiritual term. It literally just means to realize you're going the wrong way and then turn around and go another direction. That's what Nehemiah does. So he hears the news and he wept aloud. Uh, he prayed, he fasted, he cried out to God. And then he prayed this prayer. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read the first few sentences to you. He prayed, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to your eyes and open and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So he calls out to God and the first thing he prays is, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. First things first, Nehemiah recognizes and acknowledges that he's wrong. We're in error. We're, we're ignoring God's plan. We've committed sin. We've created distance between God and us. Now, that sounds really spiritual and maybe even weird, but I mean, the reality is, like, if I stole something from you, if I offended you legitimately in some way, uh, there's only one way to close that distance, right? That, that would create distance between us, and the only way back is for me to come back to you and acknowledge where I was wrong and whatever we, reconciliation we need to have. That's, that's the only way to close the distance. And that's what Nehemiah is doing right here. He's closing the distance. He turns away from sin and turns toward God. And God's power goes to work immediately when he acknowledges that he's wrong, acknowledges that God's right. He seeks forgiveness and he starts to move in a new direction. And the story of rebuilding the wall really brings us to the conclusion of the Old Testament. Uh, the, ball, the wall is rebuilt in about 445 BC. We're close enough to modern history now that things can be pretty, pretty tightly dated. Uh, and then in the Old Testament, we have about 15 years of history after that. And then God goes silent for 400 years. He stops speaking through the prophets. And we've seen over and over, looking back at the Old Testament, how God is working through wayward people. Uh, I don't get it right all the time, and you don't get it right all the time. We have that common thread among us. They didn't get it right all the time. Uh, it's okay. It's who we are. Being a human is not a liability. It means God loves you. It's okay to be human. Uh, we've seen that God uses wayward people 
to restore all things back to himself. He's working his design. And so the second ends with the people turning their hearts to God, completing the wall. And what I want you to know is that you actually have a huge advantage over Nehemiah. When Nehemiah began to mourn and pray and repent, he actually did that for four months. He fasted and cried out to God. You have a huge advantage because you have Jesus. You don't have a repentance process. You have Christ who paid the bill for you. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter is preaching literally the first post, uh, post-resurrection sermon. This is like the beginning of the church right here on this day. He says to the people, he says, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. Notice the progression that happens right there. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Acknowledge, I'm wrong. You're right. I'm imperfect. You're perfect. Uh, Your way is the way. And then the outcome of that will be your sins will be wiped away. Not when you confess, you get to enter into the process and start working for it, but, but when you turn to God, Jesus has paid the bill. Your sins are washed away. And the consequence, the outcome of that is that times of refreshment will come from God. And you'll begin to see his salvation working in your life. The progression is amazing. You have a huge advantage because you could accomplish all of that right now in your seat. You don't even have to weep for four months. How about that? Because you have Jesus. Now, some people might say, I'm already a Christian. I don't need to repent. I'm good. I'm already taken care of. Uh, You know what? The bill is already paid. But I'd like to think that we as Christians who operate out of gratitude for what Jesus has done, we of all people should be the most repentant people on the planet because we understand what's been done for us. Not that we have to work for it, but that we've already received us, received it. So Nehemiah had religion and you have Jesus. And this is the big idea that for Nehemiah, religion said, shame on you. But Jesus says, shame off you. How about that? Religion says, shame on you. Get it right. Fix your problems. Start behaving. But Jesus says, no, no, shame off you onto me. I'll take your sin. 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins on his cross, on his body, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Religion says, shame on you. We've probably all felt the weight of that kind of guilt, but Jesus says, no, no, shame off you. Shame on me. You have a huge advantage over Nehemiah. I'm excited to get to the New Testament and see what happens. I'm going to actually ask the band if they'll come. Uh, we're going to take just a couple minutes. Uh, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to sing a few songs, two songs I think they're going to lead us in, just to worship God, to celebrate what he's done. But we're also going to celebrate through communion. So I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me real quick. I'm going to grab one of these. Uh, good luck getting this open appropriately. Um, but here's the deal. It's, I want to celebrate some specific things. Uh, through communion today. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he gathered up his disciples and he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. The Bible says the wage of sin is death and I'm about to pay that penalty for you. How about that? How incredible. And he said, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is establishing a blood covenant between you and God. And when it's established in blood, guess what? It can't be undone. Uh, if you're wondering, do I, like, am I 
Am I like unsaved whenever I screw up? Jesus has established the covenant in blood for you. You don't flux in and out of his grace. By faith in Christ, you remain in his grace. So I want to celebrate our act of surrender today through communion. Celebrate the lifting of our guilt that our sins have been atoned for. And if you want to receive that today, all you have to do is put your faith in Christ and turn to God. And I want to celebrate the favor of God that now belongs to you. And it's established permanently by a blood covenant through Christ. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to lead us. You're going to wrestle with your cup. Uh, It still counts if you can't get it open appropriately. Jesus still died for you. It's okay. Uh, So let's pray together really quick. God, uh, thank you, Lord, that you are, in fact, working all things back to your intended state for it. You're working all things back to the place of being very good, just like you declared it all to be when you completed your creation. Lord, I'm also grateful that you consider us, those who know you and love you and follow you and have received you as our Savior and our Lord, you you consider us to be a part of your plan for reconciliation. And everyone's invited. Everyone's invited to be a part of that. You have plans for each one of our lives. You have a spot in the story for each one of us. And then you made a way for us to take our spot when you sent your son to pay the bill for our sins. And so, God, we just want to celebrate your goodness today as we remember you in communion. God, I pray that you would help us to go out the door today and live like people who have been bought back, live like people who do have a purpose, like people who do have a place in the story. And so this is our celebration of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.